morning. Gonna cl clip my notes on to the um, podium before they blow away. Uh, it's a, a privilege, honestly, a privilege for me to be here with you, to worship with you, uh, and to bring God's word this morning. Uh, just by way of, again, introduction, again, um, my name's David Billingsley, and uh, I am actually your campus minister, uh, believe it or not, at the University of Texas at Dallas. So I am the campus minister through our denomination's campus ministry, Reformed University Fellowship Inter International. So you all are a part of our work at the campus of UTD. Whether you knew it or not, that's how we work as Presbyterians. We're connected in that way. I am a, a pastor of the Presbytery sent to the campus. And that's a beautiful thing about RUF is on all our campuses, we send ordained ministers of the gospel to the campus as the organic arm of the church on the campus. And so like Slim said, I work specifically with international students at UT Dallas, and that's because there are almost 10,000 international students at UT Dallas, more than any school in Texas, number 11 in the country. And uh, if you're familiar with like world missions lingo, and it's okay if you're not, or if you're just visiting, but if you are, you've probably heard of the 1040 window. And it's this uh, window in the world, latitude and longitude, where there are about 3 billion people uh, who have no access to the gospel. Uh, they uh, don't have a church nearby. There's no one there to preach the gospel to them. And yet God sovereignly, providentially is bringing them to places like UT Dallas, uh, where they have the opportunity to meet Christians engage with churches, and explore the gospel. So in RUF International, we want to welcome students with biblical hospitality. That's a lot of what we do, is eating and uh, having uh, great meals together and welcoming students into our homes. Then we want to explore the gospel with them. And then finally, as Lord willing, they come to know Christ, or maybe they're already Christians, we want to equip them to be ambassadors of the kingdom of God for wherever they go next. Maybe they're going to stay for a few years in Texas or in the U.S., but most of them will go back to their home country. So you can see this is a beautiful way that God has orchestrated for us to send missionaries, if you will, uh, for people to go back where they know the language, they have relationships, uh, they don't have to get a visa or sneak in. And so it's really a beautiful opportunity for us to extend hospitality to these students. Um, so that's what I do. Um, and as I thought about what I do, I've been there three years. There's a lot of verses, uh, a lot of scripture that propels me personally and propels our ministry. But if I had to pick one, it would be this one. It's this passage from 1 Thessalonians 2, specifically verse 8, which is what I'm going to uh, speak mostly about. Um, and we'll see why. So before I get into that, let me pray, and uh, then we'll... Uh, I'll expand on God's word. Father, in your light do we see light, and in your truth find freedom. So free us, Lord, now through the power of your word. Holy Spirit, wield the gospel in our hearts and bring us into that freedom where we're free to fail, free to try to love our neighbors because we're secure in Christ. So please help us now today, Lord, in this church community to become closer to you 
and propelled in love towards those who are different from us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Be careful of Christians. Be careful of Christians because dot, 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 fill in the blank. How, how would your coworkers fill in the blank, do you think? How would your neighbors fill in the blank? How would people at your campus fill in the blank? Be careful of Christians because what? Well, I know how many, many international students fill in that blank. Be careful of Christians because they only want to convert you. That's the vibe amongst a lot of international students. They know that Christians don't really care about them. They know that Christians just want to get a notch on their belt or a, a badge on their vest and have some kind of faux relationship with them because really they just they want to convert them. And the more time I spend with these students, the more I see that they sadly are right. Uh, because, you know, there's the random church group that shows up on campus passing out tracts or um, doing some street evangelism, and they don't really offer friendship. They don't offer hospitality that these students are eager for and hoping for. They just come and go, and that's the end of it. And then there's, there's another group of people uh, who interact with students like this, and they spend time with students. They get meals with them. They invite them in their home. But then when the subject of Christianity comes up or they ask students if they want to read the Bible and the students maybe say, I'm not really interested in that. Or, you know, I, I'm pretty busy with my master's degree and I just don't have time for something like that right now. Um, well, what often happens is then the invitations to come over stop and the relationship gets cut off because I think the the well-meaning Christian thinks, okay, I tried my best with this one and it's time to move on to, to somebody else. But then you can see how that narrative just gets reinforced again, that actually, I knew it. They didn't care about me. This was all a ruse to try to get me to read the Bible. Now I don't want to and the friendship's over. And what I, what I want to encourage you with and show you from First Thessalonians 2 is that whether you engage with international students like me or not, I think this is the way most people view Christians. They don't have to be from another country. They don't have to be from the 1040 window to think that way. Um, but I want to show you that when that wall comes up, when you get that stiff arm from someone, that it's actually the gospel itself that propels us to push in and love people even more that it's the gospel that demonstrates to people that they're not a project for us, but that we see them as people, wherever they're from, whatever their background, and that our relationship with them is not dependent on their response to what we believe about Jesus and what we want them to know. And I say all this as kind of a way of introduction to, and to just put my cards on the table I'm saying this as someone who has failed, okay? I'm saying this as someone, as I reflect on the past three years with students especially, I have been guilty 
of what I just talked about. I have been guilty of cutting relationships off too soon or thinking, okay, they're not interested and it's time to move on. But that's where I know I've, le I've learned and continue to repent and instead press in in love the way the scriptures and the gospel tells us. So again, think about Waco, okay? What's it like in Waco? Be careful of Christians because what do people think? Maybe they think, be careful of Christians because they want to convert you to a political party. Or be careful of Christians because they just want to convert you to a certain lifestyle. Be careful of Christians because they want to convert you to a schooling choice for the, your kids. Or maybe they want to convert you religiously and how you spend your time on Sunday morning. But are people saying, be careful of Christians because they'll just continue to extend hospitality. They'll continue to extend love and grace. And they'll keep talking about Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection and how it's shaped everything for them. And even though I disagree with them, the love doesn't stop. So looking at our text this morning, the first thing I think we need to see is that for all the preaching, for all the discussion, for all the proclaiming of the gospel that we see from Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they very clearly did not want the Thessalonians to think they only wanted to convert them. And that's actually part of the accusation made against Paul, is people were saying, you know, Paul was only here for a short time. He just kind of came and left, and he doesn't really care about you, Thessalonians. He just... He just wanted to, to have you come to know Jesus and move on. He doesn't care about you. So let's see what Paul has to say. And so in verses 1 through 6, I want you to see what Paul says they didn't do with the Thessalonians. And then in verses 7 and 8, what they did do. Okay, so that's it. That's it this morning. What they didn't do and what they did do. And kids, I know you've got an activity sheet hope you're learning your catechism question, but I also want you to pay attention to three things this morning. So all the kids, I need your eyes up here. All the kids, this is for you, okay? I'm going to tell you a story about someone who got beat up, okay? So make sure you're listening for the story about someone who got beat up. Also have a story about the ball game. It'll make sense, trust me, when we get there. And then finally, there's a story about St. Augustine. Okay, kids, those are the things. Keep your ears open for those three things as we, we go along this morning. So first, let's see what uh, Paul and the apostles did not do in uh, Thessalonica. So in verses 1 through 6, we see, first of all, that the situation in, in Thessalonica was not, wasn't an easy situation. Uh, in verse 2, Paul says that, You know we had already suffered and been shamefully treated uh, at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So this, the setting or the situation here is Paul is reminding them that he got beat up. Paul got beat up in Philippi with rods and was thrown in prison and was shamefully treated. And then he still came to them after that in Thessalonica, that Paul knew he just had experienced 
this brutality in Philippi. And he still chose to continue knowing probably the same fate awaited him in Thessalonica, and he still came to them. And it's because his boldness was not in himself, but in God. And if you look back in Acts 17 about what happened when Paul uh, was in Thessalonica, what happened is uh, Paul was accused of not being very patriotic because he and the apostles were saying, there's a different Lord we follow than Caesar. No, we follow King Jesus. And the whole city got turned kind of upside down and there was this uproar. And Paul and the fellow uh, workers he was with, they had to run for their lives and flee Thessalonica. That's why they left. It's not because he didn't care about them. It's because he had to run for his life. And what he says then is, we remember, we came to you knowing that that was going to happen. And then how did we are conduct ourselves with you? If you look at verses uh, 3 through 6, I'm sorry, 4 through 6, uh, he says, no, I was right the first time, 3 through 6. He says, for our appeal, listen to all the, the things he didn't do. Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel so we speak not to please man but to please God who tests our heart for we never came with words of flattery as you know no nor with a pretext for greed God is witness nor did we seek glory from people whether from you or for, from others though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So you see all the things he's saying, we didn't do all these things. We never came to you uh, with some motive of impurity or trying to get money from you, or we didn't come uh, trying to do some kind of like bait and switch where it's like, hey, why don't you come over to our house for dinner? And then it's like, oh, and now I'd like to show you this uh, great illustration about the gospel or give you this track and walk you through how you can become a Christian. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. We didn't do a bait and switch. We didn't do anything like that. We didn't come with some ulterior motives. We were very clear about our coming to you, and we didn't uh, try to sneak in the gospel in a conversation or in some way that we were interacting with you. And it reminded me of this story, and I think this is good, especially if you've been in church for a while. This is good to remember. Uh, there's a story from a woman, uh, it's a true story, who was a lesbian and uh, was uh, getting hate mail from Christians, okay? Uh, she wrote an article and was getting hate mail, but then she got one letter from a pastor. And the pastor didn't try to argue with her. It just, he offered her hospitality. He offered her a meal. And she didn't know what to do with this. This was like, this broke the narrative for her. But So she takes him up on it, goes over for dinner, and this is what she said struck her uh, in that interaction. She said, during our meal, the pastor and his wife did not share the gospel with me. After our meal, they did not invite me to church. Because of these glaring omissions to the Christian script as I had come to know it, when the evening ended and the pastor said he wanted to keep in touch, I knew that it was truly safe to accept his open hand. See, we don't, we, don't need, we don't need to think of the gospel as like some kind of incantation or spell or charm. Like if we just say it right to them this time, then they'll become Christians. We're free to just engage with others without the pressure of thinking, 
We need to invite them to church the first time we interact with them. Or I, I didn't share the gospel this specific way the first time I engaged with, with someone. But we're free to just be friends, free to invite people over and share a meal and not do some kind of bait and switch. And that Paul is saying we didn't need to seek this kind of, we didn't come with these ulterior motives, but truly loved you and shared the gospel with you. And so that's what we're going to see then in the second half, in verses 7 through 8. Um, what, they, what did they do then? Okay, if that's what they didn't do, if they didn't do, you know, some bait and switch, they didn't come trying to get money from people or, or anything like that, what did they do? And if you look at verse 7, it says, Paul says, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Now, if you have your Bible open um, and you're using the ESV or maybe you're using another translation, you'll see uh, that word gentle in verse 7 has like a tiny little footnote uh, next to it. And if you look at the footnote, it says that some manuscripts translate that word as infants. And I'm here to convince you this morning that those some manuscripts are right. And uh, it matters. Just roll with me, okay? Quick little Greek grammar lesson, but it does matter. Um, if you look at verse 6, where it talks about we could have sought glory from you, but we didn't, and uh, we could have made demands of you as apostles of Christ, the period at the end of verse 6 doesn't have to go there. It can go after that word infant. So instead it would read, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were infants among you, period. Because otherwise, if, if we were infants among you, like a nursing mother, that doesn't make sense. That's why a lot of them translate it as gentle. But the point, and here's why it matters, okay? I'm getting there. Why it matters then is Paul is saying, we could have come and made demands of you as apostles of Christ. We could have come with our superiority and rightfully claimed certain things from you because of our status as apostles. But instead, we were like babies. Instead, we got low and humbled ourselves as low as babies. And I think that's why, as, as Malcolm reminded us in our liturgy this morning, that's why the posture of arrogance contradicts the gospel. And that a lot of times as Christians come with this superiority complex, thinking we're better than others, and poor them, they need the gospel. And that happens in a, a, a wide array of avenues and categories. It happens in missions all the time where people go as missionaries to other parts of the world and they think for decades, they can think that they're better than the people they're reaching out to and witnessing to. But Paul says, no, we didn't do that. We came low. We came like babies. And he drives this point home even more when he talks about then in verse 8. Oh, the wind blew my Bible pages. Okay. In verse 8, where he says, Like a nursing mother taking care of her children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but our very selves or our own 
lives. And see, when he says we shared not only the gospel but our very lives, you can't separate those two things. Even as I was like preparing for this sermon originally, I was thinking about, okay, talk about sharing the gospel and then talk about sharing our lives. But that already defeats the purpose if you start thinking of them as these kind of separate things to do. And we can always see that in sharing the gospel, there's not just sharing of information or sharing of words. There's always a sharing of our lives, a sharing of ourselves, of gospel actions, gospel deeds, gospel life. One of my favorite uh, theologians and missiologists is a, uh, a guy named Leslie Newbegin, who was a missionary in India for about 40 years. And he, uh, when he came back to Western culture in the UK, he realized that his experience in India, uh, specifically with Hinduism and these multiple gods, he came back to the West and saw, it's the same thing here. It's actually not that different at all. And listen to what he has to say about this, this interaction of gospel life and gospel proclamation. He says, the purely verbal preaching of the story of Jesus crucified and risen would lose its power if those who heard it could not trace it back to some kind of community in which the message was being validated in a common way of life, which is recognizable as embodying at least a hint and foretaste of the blessedness for which all men long and which the gospel promises. I love that image of the proclamation of the gospel has to be traced back to a visible community in which it's being, it's being validated. That otherwise, to, to split these two things apart, this is what a, a Newbigin scholar said, if, if you split these things apart, it's absurd because the deed without the word is dumb and the word without the deed is empty and to set them against each other is absurd. And I think about you know my interactions with students. This is uh, very clear because... We do a lot with students um, in, in deed. We help them get furniture when they first arrive. We pick them up from the airport and give them a ride to their apartment. We help them go to the grocery store because many of them don't have cars. Um, but if that's all we did, I mean, anybody can do that. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. Like Anybody can help someone like that. But if all we did then was talk about the gospel, all I did was preach at them or uh, if all I did was invite them to Bible discussions and Bible studies, then what I would have to share about Jesus Christ could just get pushed aside as talk. Hey, that's great for you. You believe these things about Jesus. I have no idea why that would matter. I have no clue how it would make any difference in my life. And we can't separate these things. And Paul, Paul's analogy of a nursing mother is actually amazing because mothers can't separate this either. See, a nursing mother is literally giving of herself for the life of her child. Literally nourishing with her own life the life of her child. And look again at these words in verse 8 where it says that they had become Affect, we had become affectionately desirous of you, like a mother and her affection with her child. Now, I, I do want to make a quick aside. 
And I just want to acknowledge that many of you have not had this kind of affection from your parents. And so that analogy may ring hollow with you. And I just want you to know I, I see you in that, that that's okay for that to be a difficult thing to embrace or to remember. But God's grace and love and his care for you as a heavenly father is real. And I, again, I don't have like some silver lining or some nice way to, to patch up maybe what's happened in your life, but just to point you again to, to scripture and see that God wants something for you in this to know that's true about him. And as I think about my own life as a parent, you know, I'm not a mother, a nursing mother, but Paul does a few verses later talk about fathers. So just roll with me, okay? Um, it's hard for me to put into words how much I love my own daughters. I have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old. And uh, imagine if, if all I did with them was catechism questions, Bible stories, scripture memory, and I never shared myself, if I never played tackle, uh, or it, in my family, we have this game called the ball game. You know what the ball game is in my family? I have a dryer ball, and I, they try to get it from me. That's the ball game at my house, and it's what my kids want to play all the time. Dad, can we play the ball game? And imagine if I said, no, 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 children. It's time for catechisms. No, 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 children. Let's read the Bible story. And if I never played with them, never went fishing, never hugged them, or if I thought, you know what I should do is I should play the ball game with them, and then that will get them open to more Bible stuff. Well, then I'm not, I'm not loving them. I'm using them to make myself feel better. And that's what can happen to us in, in making this, whatever you, you want to call it, making evangelism this project for ourselves is often what can happen. To not really love others, but to make ourselves feel better. And then I think a problem is in, in, in Western culture, by and large, we think what people need is right information, right doctrine. And I know this is a new church plant. Some of you are just even new to the idea of being Presbyterian. So spoiler alert, our tradition is very guilty of this. We're very guilty of making sure people have the right information, the right doctrine. And there's nothing bad about that in and of itself. We do need right doctrine. We do need good teaching. We do need to know and embrace the truth. But as Paul said, it's not only that. Paul says, we came not only to share the gospel, but our very selves. And so what people need is the gospel, and they need you. Like you, your story, your background, your baggage, your broken life. That's what they need. But we do not want to do that. Why? Why do, why do we not want to share our very selves with others? Because I think a lot of times it's easier to share the gospel than it is to share ourselves. And why, why is that? Our, 
this is not an exhaustive list, okay? There's just a few, a few reasons why I think we don't want to do this. Is one, we can't fake it. And we have to be known by others. See, if, if all we do is share the gospel, then we can keep people at a distance. And we can do events, we can do uh, different acts of service even at times, and then we can share the gospel. But if we don't share our very lives, our very selves with people, we can just keep faking it. I'll pick on myself for a minute. You know, I honestly am much more like Aaron Burr than Alexander Hamilton, much more than I would ever want to admit. Talk less, smile more. Don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. Keep my cards close to my chest. Just watch whatever way the wind blows and go with that. But instead, the scriptures and the gospel call us to really sharing of ourselves and to be vulnerable enough to let people in. I think another reason we don't want to do this is we're sadly a results-driven culture and not a relationally-driven culture. And so just, again, to use an example from uh, my work with students at UT Dallas, I'm interacting with students who literally have never read the Bible before, literally have never read a word of scripture. And I remember, it's like, I, I knew that going into it, that that would be the case. But I remember this night at my house when we had students over and some of them are visiting scholars, which means they've already finished their PhDs or are about to finish their PhD. Uh, some of them were PhD students, some of them were master's students. And uh, I asked them, we were, we were going through this semester at my house, the big story of the Bible, God's uh, cosmic plan of the renewal of all things from creation to consummation. And as we were going through the big story of the Bible, we got to Exodus, we got to the Ten Commandments, and I asked them, uh, have any of you heard of the Ten Commandments? Not do you know any of the Ten Commandments, have you heard about the Ten Commandments, like generically? No. All six of these students, no, 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 never even heard of it. And so these students are here for two years, most likely, tops. So, and there, so there's not going to be some like great results of all these you know, students from around the world who are coming to know Christ in this two-year period. I, a lot of times we're just, we're just not, we're not even sowing seeds. We're just like digging up the soil like to do something just to help them get one step closer to Jesus. But that doesn't sound very cool. That doesn't sound very good. But again, the good news is, is that it's not up to us. And as good Presbyterians, good Reformed theology, we know we don't have the power to convert people. Only the Holy Spirit can convert people. Only the Holy Spirit can open blind eyes and shine the light of the gospel and say, let there be light into someone's heart. And I, it gives this freedom then to remember that it's not my mission, it's the Holy Spirit's mission. It's the mission of the triune God to draw sinners to himself. I think another reason why this is hard for us is we're obsessed with the right information, the right knowledge, as I kind of mentioned before. 
And we spend so much time, some of us, not, not probably all of us, but some of us spend so much time preparing for conversations. Maybe it's like apologetics for you, or maybe it's uh, arguments on social media you're like gearing up for. And we spend all this time researching and getting ready to get just the right answer for someone. But a lot of times what happens is that conversation never happens. Or we're preparing for these hypothetical situations instead of loving and showing hospitality to our real neighbors and our coworkers or people on campus, whoever it might be. And instead then of spending all this time figuring out what we might say to this hypothetical person we've never met and will never have over to dinner, instead as we get to know people and they ask us questions, we can have the freedom to say, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. I've never thought about that before. Let me spend some time to think about it and get back to you. And then that honors the relationship. That shows care and concern for them as a person. And then when you do think about it and you do look stuff up and come back to talk about it more, they know you really care and you're going to take them seriously. But here's the thing. We could, we, could, we could gear up for all this and think, like, let's go do it. Let's, let's love our neighbors. Let's invite people over. Let's show incredible hospitality and change the narrative of how people view Christians. But if that's what we left with today, I would have certainly failed you. Because... We can't do this just by mustering it up on our own or even locking arms with each other and just going for it. No, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and see how he is the one who shared not only the gospel but his very life. See, <laughs> he's the one who could have come and made demands, not just as an apostle of Christ, but as the Christ, as the Messiah, as God's chosen king. He could have come not with supposed superiority, but with true superiority as God. But Jesus literally became an infant among us. We read part of the larger catechism earlier that talks about this, and I'm just going to read the section from the shorter catechism that talks about Christ's humiliation, his humility, his humbling of himself. And see how low Jesus Christ went for us. Catechism says, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. As we talked about again earlier in our liturgy, just think about how low Jesus got for us. Like at least come to earth when there's electricity right? Have you ever thought about that? Like, at least come when there's a hot water heater, or come to earth where there's 
food from around the world you can enjoy. You can have sushi and uh, amazing Indian food and Mexican food and barbecue. Like, come when you can experience that. But even if Jesus would have come in that situation and circumstance, it would be like living in the crawl space compared to the glory he had in heaven. But he chose to become, become a human 2,000 years ago and be born in a barn, in a manger, and be poor and live in this low condition. And Jesus is the one who, like a nursing mother, looked out at his people and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, in Jesus, we know that God didn't just share with us the right information, but his very life, his very self. We don't come, this is, this is profound for me at least, we don't come to the gospel, we come to Jesus. God himself entered in. He didn't send us messages from heaven, he entered in. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and gave up his own life for us. Why? Why would he take on that cursed death on the cross, the wrath of God, righteously poured out? Why? It's because God is affectionately desirous of you. You are the one who's very dear to him. So he came to share not only the gospel, but his very life for you. And what's interesting is, as we think about then, how that compels us forward. Jesus, like, say it like this. I'm, I'm ripping from Newbegin again. Jesus didn't leave a book. And what I mean by that is, if you think of other religions in the world, the founders or the great prophets, they're the ones who write things down. Obviously, we think of Islam, uh, maybe the Mormons. You know, the, their founders leave behind a book, but Jesus didn't write anything down, actually, himself. What he left behind were people. He left behind a community, knowing that what we need is not just a message, but the messengers themselves embodied and sharing of the gospel and sharing of this gospel life together. And so then missions is just simply acted out doxology, as others have said before. That in the worship of God, we just desire for other people to join in and know the greatness and love of Jesus the way we do. To know that there's a God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And we just want people to know and participate in that with us. It's amazing. Um, St. Augustine, he, when he was converted, he was reflecting on this relationship he had with his, his preacher, his pastor, Ambrose, uh, in Milan. And what Augustine said in thinking about this um, conversion and what brought him to faith, he was thinking about Ambrose, and Augustine said to Ambrose, it was not your great teaching, 
I scarcely expected to find that in the Christian church in any case. But it was that you were kind to me. Maybe a more modern person to think of um, who hammers this point home as well is the great African-American Presbyterian pastor, Francis Grimke, who said the only effective way of propagating Christianity is to live it. It is all right to preach it by word of mouth, but if we're not careful to live it, our words will go for nothing. And there's, I think, really good news for us is that this is, this is way easier than we think. It looks like eating with people. It looks like dancing with people. On Thursday, I was saying bye to some Indian students who... Uh, are, are moving away, and we just, we danced together all night, and I looked so stupid, okay? Like, I was just, I know I looked dumb. But to engage with them in, in their world, and to get like one Punjabi move right, okay, was like thrilling for them. And it's in these simple ways that we can engage others and feel the freedom to fail, because we're held onto by Christ and what he's done for us. We're not justified by evangelism. We're justified by faith in Jesus. And we get this really amazing opportunity today to do this when we come to the Lord's Supper, when we come to the table, because we see so clearly at the table that God is not just giving us the right information, but giving us of his very life of his very self that Jesus reminds us that we need to feast on him to be nourished by him to be sustained by him and he says take and eat I've given myself for you I've given my very self for you you're united to me and even though you continue to stiff arm me and to put the wall up with me at times I continue to invite you to my table Christian I continue to dine with you and feast with you and one day is coming and it will never end the feast will never end so go and do likewise with your neighbor let's pray